This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle, the cloud-based business management software that gives you the visibility and control you need to grow. NetSuite is offering their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash WAPO. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Sinuiza back from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, December 19th. Today, next steps in the presidential impeachment. Why Utah wants more refugees. And rebooting a TV show that was the first of its kind. On this vote, the yeas are 229. The nays are 198. The House impeached the president on two counts. The yeas are 230. The nays are 197. Present is one. Article one is adopted. Abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Article two is adopted. But he's still president. I'm Amber Phillips, and I write about politics for The Fix at The Washington Post. It's up to the Senate to hold a trial and decide his punishment. Do they acquit him? Do they convict him? And if they convict him, the Constitution says he's kicked out of office ASAP. So what does the Constitution say about what this Senate trial is going to look like? That's it. (laughs) Everything I just told you. The Senate did pass rules in the 1980s laying out the broad parameters of a Senate trial and looking at the historical context we have. At that point, there was only one Senate impeachment trial of Andrew Johnson. We've since had a modern one in Bill Clinton. Uh, But those rules don't really say much beyond like the chief justice of the United States serves as the overseer of this. The senators serve as a jury. Prosecutors who are House lawmakers serve as what are called House managers, essentially prosecuting the case. The president can call his own lawyers And the trial has to last six days a week until they vote on impeachment articles. The really important stuff, though, like what witnesses do they call? What evidence, if any, do they introduce? Can witnesses be cross-examined or are their depositions taped and then aired in the Senate trial? Is totally up in the air and it's up for the senators themselves to decide. And that's where we find ourselves at a political loggerhead. Well, it seems not only can they not decide on those things, but they don't even know when this trial is going to start. At this point, the articles of impeachment, they haven't yet been delivered from the House to the Senate. That's right. This was a hijink nobody saw coming. Uh, But as the debate was happening Wednesday on on impeaching Trump, the Post Mike DeBonis reported that there were three dozen lawmakers to the left generally of the political spectrum who are pushing Pelosi to hold back these articles of impeachment. They physically get walked over to the Senate and presented to the Senate, and that kicks off a Senate trial. We're expecting that to happen after the Christmas break. But these lawmakers are saying, why don't we hold this back until we can ensure in some way that the Senate has what they deem is a fair trial? And after the vote, Nancy Pelosi got asked about this by reporters, and she left open the possibility to indeed doing that. We cannot name managers until we see what the process is on the Senate side. 
She said, for example, she wasn't going to name who the House managers were. The House managers being basically who will be the prosecutors in the Senate trial. That's exactly right. So she wasn't going to pick which lawmakers would be doing the prosecuting until she found out that the Senate was having a fair trial. Well, we'd like to see a fair process, but we'll see what they have and we'll be ready for whatever it is. Yes, Chad. We would hope there would be a fair process, just as we hope that they would honor the Constitution. By the way, I saw some of it, I didn't see it, but I heard some of what Mitch McConnell said today. And it reminded me that our founders, when they wrote the Constitution, uh, they suspected that there could be a rogue president. I don't think they suspected that we could have a rogue president and a rogue leader in the Senate at the same time. So reporters pressed her on that. Well, what does fair mean? And she strongly suggested it meant to her uh, McConnell being open to having witnesses in this trial. And witnesses is kind of code for the people in Trump's inner circle who might know about his intentions on Ukraine with beyond a shadow of the doubt who haven't testified in the House impeachment inquiry. Uh, Not because the House lawmakers didn't want to talk to them, but because Trump banned them. That would be acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney and former National Security Advisor John Bolton, who topped the list there. So what we have here is a situation where Pelosi is threatening to withhold the procedural process to start a Senate trial to try to force that Senate trial to have witnesses that could be damaging to Trump. But this is a Senate trial that Republicans didn't want to hold in the first place. So it's a little bit of a quixotic bid, but what I see— It's hard to know how much negotiating power they have here when Mitch McConnell theoretically could be like, well, we don't want to have this anyway, so we're not trying to hurry this process along. That's exactly right. And it's also confusing because up until now, it seems like there has been a lot of pressure among Democrats to get this done as fast as possible, and that they are worried about the possibility of having a Senate trial like during the Iowa caucus, where you have a lot of senators who should be using all of their time to campaign to run for president. And so there is an kind of internal tension there with Democrats who are trying to use the timing of the Senate trial as a negotiating tactic, but there's still that pressure for them to get this done as fast as possible. It's it's beneficial for them too. Especially when you consider they've been saying all along, well, why are you doing this fast? Well, we're doing this fast because we're worried he's going to do this again if we don't impeach him and then have the Senate dole out punishment. What do we know about how Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is thinking about this and what his strategy is. We know that he doesn't want to have witnesses, and some of his Senate Republican allies like Lindsey Graham have said that openly. Uh, They certainly don't want the witnesses Trump has. This is another conflict point in all of this. It's Trump and Senate Republicans. Trump really wants Democrats like Adam Schiff or Uh, Nancy Pelosi or Hunter Biden or, you know, even the whistleblower to testify. He sees this as a chance to clear his name and undermine the impeachment. Why would he want Adam Schiff or Nancy Pelosi to testify? I think it is a tactic for him to try to muddy, like, who's being investigated uh, to try to undermine the process rather than the substance. But Mitch McConnell, from his perspective, realizes like if he opens the door to witnesses that are super political, um, it it would likely be difficult to close the door for other witnesses who might be damaging to Trump, like Mick Mulvaney and like John Bolton. He would much rather have this be like 
a no drama trial, no witnesses, get this done in a couple weeks so that he can say like they did their due diligence. They held a trial like the Constitution says, but they didn't like they dealt with the evidence the House gave them. Why would he want to dig into more evidence against the president? So what has McConnell said publicly so far about how he envisions this process will look like? He has said that he's not happy he's holding a trial, but he's just going to deal with it. And he says, whatever evidence you came up with, Democrats, is what I'm going to hold up uh, as a trial. This morning he talked and he if Nancy Pelosi wanted to hold these articles of impeachment to try to get leverage to get him to consider having a more fair trial, he gave no indication he's going to do that. In fact, he sounded like even more partisan if that's possible. He accused Nancy Pelosi of succumbing to a partisan rage. Speaker Pelosi's house just gave in to a temptation that every other house in history has managed to resist. Let me say that again. Speaker Pelosi's house just gave in to a temptation that every other house in our history has managed to resist. They impeach a president whom they do not even allege has committed an actual crime known to our laws. They've impeached simply because they disagree with a presidential act and question the motive behind it. So he's not quite out there calling the impeachment process a sham or hoax like President Trump is, but he's indicating he's very supportive of of Trump in trying to undermine this impeachment process. He also has said on Fox News that he's working very closely with White House lawyers to try to craft this trial in a way that favors Trump. And I think it's important to note that a Senate trial isn't like a criminal trial. There's nothing in the rules that I've seen that it has to be like super fair straight down the line. Because that's sort of a bizarre scenario if you have the Senate serving as the jury in this trial and the Senate majority leader basically being the head of the jury. And he's saying publicly... I'm on President Trump's side. I'm coordinating with his lawyers to make sure that we all have the same strategy. Yeah, he's saying I'm with the defendant. And constitutional experts I spoke to say that's just something, a paradigm we have to get out of in America as we watch the Senate trial. We're not watching a criminal trial where everyone has their specific roles. The founders chose to give impeachment and whatever punishment to an inherently political body to deal with Congress. And so senators do take an oath of impartiality when they start this trial. That's something you see Democrats hammering McConnell on. How could you possibly take that oath and mean it when you're saying you're going to gear this toward being favorable to Trump? But I look through those 1980 rules and I don't see anything else that says senators must make every effort to hold a fair trial. Amber Phillips covers national politics for The Post. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Griff Whitty and I'm a national correspondent at The Post. So tell me about this person that you interviewed in Utah. So Apiel Kuot is a woman from South Sudan, the present-day South Sudan. She was in a refugee camp at the age of four. She grew up in this refugee camp. Her family had fled war in her native land. And for her, life looked really, really bleak. She was assaulted. She was experiencing violence all around her. And she was raising two daughters in a place where they didn't feel safe and she didn't feel safe. 
I tried resettlement, it's rejected, rejected me until 2015 I was called resettlement and I was given a letter that we are going to U.S. She applied to be resettled as a refugee. And after a long stretch of waiting, she was approved. And she was able to resettle in Utah, of all places, 9,000 miles away from this camp in Kenya where she had been living. You're going to Utah. Mm. I was like, what the hell? I don't know that. I never heard about Utah. They only said New York. That's the only name. California. Those big cities, mm. only names that are like, oh. She had never heard of Utah before. She had heard of New York. She had heard of California. She knew America from movies. When she started asking around in the camp about this place called Utah, she was terrified by what she heard. People told her, there are no black people in Utah. They're going to be terrible to you. You're going to experience real racism there. Oh, my God. I don't know this place. Like, and I was so a little bit like, nervous because how would I communicate with these people? Like, oh, my God. Life would be hard for me. And, and now it's been much longer than that since she moved to Utah. How is she doing? She loves it there. Utah, like, I just, like, it's so bright for me right now. I, I'm a self-reliance now. I can drive my own car. Mm. I can communicate with anyone I want to communicate. I'm mm. not afraid of my English anymore. Yeah. And, uh, and my daughters, they love this school over here. Mm. She has a job. She has a two-bedroom apartment. She drives a minivan. Her kids are in public school. They're thriving there. Her older daughter plays basketball. I thank God Utah was the best place for me, and God chose it for me. Mm. They give me uh, wonderful people. The environment is so safe for me right now. She says that she has been treated very, very well there, that people have been enormously hospitable. They have been generous. They are happy. They're safe. And the fact that Appiel was so welcomed when she first moved to Utah, why were you interested in that? I was interested because a few months ago, President Trump enacted this executive order in which he said that for the first time in American history, states and municipalities will be able to decide whether to allow refugees to settle in their communities. And I think that there was a, an enormous fear among refugee advocates when this new executive order was issued that it was going to unleash this wave of xenophobia and demagoguery where officials were jostling with each other to prove who was the most anti-refugee, who was the most anti-immigrant. Because basically the idea behind the executive order was that the White House doesn't want certain communities or states or cities to feel forced to take in refugees. And so politicians theoretically are now empowered to say, we don't want refugees in our in our city, in our state. And they're allowed to say that. Yes, they are. And that that's new. There's always been a negotiation that goes on between the federal government, which decides to let people into the United States and the states and cities where refugees are resettled. But this new change was going to allow states and municipalities to actually say, no refugees allowed here. You're, you're not welcome to, to settle here. And I would imagine a state like Utah, a state that is Republican, a state that voted for President Trump, I would imagine that that would potentially be a state that would take up the White House on that offer and basically say, no, we don't want refugees here. But it sounds like from your reporting, that's not the case. So not long after Trump issued this executive order, he held a rally in Minneapolis. For many years, leaders in Washington, 
brought large numbers of refugees to your state from Somalia. And he talked about the fact that in Minnesota, there are a very large number of Somali refugees. And the entire crowd booed. There were jeers at the mention of refugees. And then he says, I promise you that as president, I would give local communities a greater say in refugee policy. But I've given the the people of this state, the people of this city, the chance to block refugees from coming here. And everyone cheered. And I've done that. It's interesting, though, that in a state like Utah, which, as you say, very Republican, very conservative, very devout, very white, it's about 90% white, uh, there was, instead of a this reaction of, yes, let's keep them out, or instead of, yes, let's reduce their numbers, it was, actually, Mr. President, we would like more of these people. And the governor even wrote a letter to President Trump, the Republican governor of Utah, wrote a letter to the president saying, please send us more refugees. So this wasn't just like liberal people who happened to live in Utah saying we want more refugees. The actual governor was reaching out to President Trump saying we actually want more and and other politicians too, right? So when the governor wrote this letter, the reaction among state politicians, whether they were Republicans or Democrats, was absolutely. We agree with our governor. The Republican speaker of the House in Utah immediately got on Twitter and said, yes, this is the right thing to do. The congressman from Utah said, yes, we should be doing this, Republican congressman. It it is not a partisan issue in Utah. I spoke with the mayor of Salt Lake City, who's a Democrat, and she says on a whole range of issues, she and the governor are not on the same page. He's a Republican, she's a Democrat. But on refugees, she says, we're in complete alignment. We agree. And I'm very grateful and proud of that fact. Mm. Um, And what did these Republican politicians say about why they wanted more refugees if a kind of open-armed embrace of, of an influx of refugees is not really the Republican Party line right now? They say it's good for Utah. They say that this is allowing refugees in is something that strengthens bonds within communities. They say these are people who uh, we need because we have a roaring economy and we can't find enough workers to, to fill available jobs. They enrich the culture. They enrich the art scene. They make Utah a better, more dynamic place. And obviously also there's the humanitarian aspect. Churches, synagogues, mosques, all very involved in helping refugees to resettle in Utah. And it's something that's that's good for those communities. So these benefits that they're highlighting about the way that refugees can help fill jobs that need to be filled in places like Utah, that's not just like a, a theoretical need. I mean, that's a thing that they're already experiencing right now. Absolutely. So Utah set up a state-run training center for refugees a few years ago. And the whole idea was, sure, refugees can come here and work minimum wage jobs, but there are actually a lot of jobs out there that are not minimum wage, that are well-paid jobs that lead to careers. And you just need to have people who are trained for them. Yeah. And and the governor, when he wrote this letter to Trump, he, he made that point. They're a benefit to us. It's not just that we're interested in having these people out of the goodness of our hearts, but actually they can contribute. 
So do you think this attitude that Utah has about refugees, that it is indicative of how other red states, how other Republican communities might be feeling about the issue of of refugees and, and resettling them? Or do you think that there's something specific about Utah that is different from other Republican states that makes them more open to this? I think it's both. I think Utah is exceptional for a few reasons. It does a really good job of integrating refugees into the community, integrating them into the workforce. It has been very supportive in terms of the legislation that the state has passed to make sure that there's the infrastructure there so that when people land in Utah, that they are prepared to succeed there. There's also the element of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS Church, the Mormon Church, which has a big influence on the culture of the state. Mormons identify strongly with the refugee experience because they say we were refugees ourselves. We were discriminated against in the eastern United States in the 19th century. We had to go west. We had to find a place where we would be welcomed and we would not be persecuted. And they tie this very directly to the experience of refugees today. Now, obviously, flight from religious persecution or any kind of persecution is not unique to to Mormons. It's a very American thing. I think the difference is that they really connect their own history with the history of people who are fleeing now. So Utah is distinctive in some ways, but it's been very interesting to see the reaction of other red states as well and other purple states where politicians have not been rushing to get on this bandwagon of trying to keep refugees out. We've seen a number of Republican governors governor of North Dakota, the governor of Arizona. We've seen swing state governors in Colorado and Virginia go out of their way to say, we actually do want refugees. Thank you very much, Mr. President, for the offer to ban them, but but we'd like to keep them. Despite this hyper-partisan, hyper-politicized environment that, that Trump creates at the national level, at the state level, at the city level, at the local level, we've seen a, a softening in attitudes. And it's it's a reversion to what traditionally had been the American approach to refugees, not the Democratic approach, not the Republican approach, but this was just the way the U.S. approached refugees, which is these are people who are in need of protection. These are people who are fleeing war. They're fleeing violence. They're fleeing awful circumstances. And it's good for the United States to give them a home. The tangible benefits of, of having refugees living in people's communities are meaningful enough that it emboldens politicians and, and important members of communities to say, actually, this is one thing that we are not going to agree with President Trump on. And we will say that publicly. Exactly. And these are people who have waited a long time. They have been through a very rigorous vetting process. They're following the legal procedures. To demonize these people, I think, has been a hard sell, even in very, very conservative places. And for people like Apiel, who have found welcoming homes in surprising places, what do they say about the fact that their reception and their experience in the communities that they live in, that it's been positive despite this rhetoric coming from the president? So Apiel is, she's working toward her GED and she plans to enroll in medical training so that she can be in a position, be it as a, as a first responder or perhaps as a nurse or someone who is working in the medical field, helping people. 
ultimately, she's only been here for a couple of years now. Ultimately, she wants to give back. She says, Utah helped me and it didn't even know me. And why wouldn't I go out now and help people that I don't know? I need to help the community. Has to help me because the Utah helped me and they don't know me. Mm. So why am I not doing the same thing to other people that I don't know to because they will need my help as long as I have a better education, better knowledge on what I can do to help my people in the community. So, so she's still working on exactly what that looks like, what that means. But she's very clear that she wants to give back to this community that has given her so much. Griff, thank you so much. Thanks, Martine. Griff Whitty is a national correspondent for The Post. Last week, Burley County in North Dakota held a vote on whether to be the first county in the country to bar refugees under Trump's executive order. The measure was expected to pass, but after hours of debate and an outcry from residents, the county commission eventually voted in favor of continuing to accept refugees. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. And now one more thing about the L word. If you watched it, the original, the song sticks with you forever. And you can just walk up to any other lesbian or any queer person who's seen it and be like, Laughing, loving, lying, cheating. Talking, laughing, loving, breathing, fighting, fucking, crying, drinking, writing, winning, losing, cheating, kissing, thinking, dreaming. Wow. It is fantastic. This is Sarah. She works on the video team. My name is Sarah Hashemi, and I am the lesbian at The Washington Post. (laughs) That's not true. There's so many of us. Sarah has been reporting on the legacy of The L Word. It is a show that premiered in 2004 and lasted six seasons one of which we don't really talk about. And it is a show about a group of queer women, mostly lesbians, who live in Los Angeles and experience everything that you do uh, in a very hyper-dramatized way. It's an emergency, uh, you know, started as a gaydar thing. Shane and I are totally capable of handling that, but this one has major relationship stuff. Yeah, and I think at this point she needs expert advice. And now it is being rebooted for a new generation, which they're coining as Generation Q. I had a weird morning with Rebecca. What happened? We wake up, and I think we're going to have breakfast, so I try to act normal. And I know that's hard for you. And then she's like, yo, I got to go to church on a Tuesday. The L word was important because it was the first of what it was. I remember seeing commercials of it when my parents were watching something else, and I was like, whoa. What is that? I was closeted. I was in Oklahoma. I actually watched the entire series in my childhood bedroom under the covers 
I kind of watched it in secret and was like enthralled that not only did these women exist, that there was like a lesbian, someone that I identified with, but there was a group of them and they were just hanging out. They were buds. They drank coffee. They fought. We saw them struggle with having children and being sick and having cancer. And they did everyday ordinary things in a way that wasn't like they did it and they're gay. It was just they existed and they lived and they happened to be gay, which was very rare for 2004 when it came out. And I saw that and I was like, whoa, I can do that too. The original L word, it didn't age well, if you will. There's been a lot of, you know, flack for the way that they portrayed people of color. And there's been a lot of flack for how they portrayed transgender men. And I think that that's something that's like very present on the creators' minds and the people making this new show. I think ours is a little bit more colorful, like across the board, which I think is great with people authentically playing who they are, whether you know, black or Dominican or Persian. I mean, I think we're bringing an authenticity to Generation Q that maybe wasn't present in one, but again, one fulfilled a need of just putting things on screen that hadn't been done before. So I think a lot of, a lot of talk about the show is like, why now? Like, why do we still need it? The original series, one of the creators of it, Eileen Chaikin, has spoken a lot to this about how she hoped that once this show got made, there would be many to follow. Like, we would see big casts of queer women in these roles, and it never really happened. We never saw anything again like it. We have so much as a community, right? We're given the right to marry. We have someone representing us running for, for president of the United States. There is a lot better representation, but it's not, it's not that simple, I don't think. I don't think we can look at these at these big things and say everything's fine now. There has to be a wholesale kind of look at what we need. And part of that is being able to look at someone on television and say, that's me. Sarah Hashemi is an animator for the video team at The Post. You can watch The L Word Generation Q on Showtime. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. Contributions to Post Helping Hand go directly to services run by beneficiaries Bright Beginnings and Street Village and So Others Might Eat that provide shelter, food, education, and other services to those less fortunate in the Washington, D.C. region. Learn more at posthelpinghand.com. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans, and yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.